Nelson Mandela had so much compassion for his brothers and sisters. People don't realize this about the Beatles, that they knew they were brilliant. One story in every human being that defines who you are. Do we film on a volcano that's just about to explode? But the reason this mail pack has been astoundingly successful is because there are pictures of rabbits on the envelope. I mean, I think there's something about chaos, right? It either, either you run from it or you run towards it. And for me, there was really this in instance of wanting to run towards it. Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is the incredible Stevie Van Zandt. Steve, I, I'd love to start in an unusual place, and that's to go back to the year 1985 and sort of the confluence of a few things. I think the River Tour was a year before. Your Voice of America album was released around that time, and it was that year that you left the E Street Band to create Artists United Against Apartheid. I know when we were together in Havana, we talked a little bit about that, but I'd love to hear about, you know, the origin of your decision to launch Artists United Against Apartheid and talk about that a little bit. Well, I had become uh, obsessed with politics. Um, I put out two solo albums while the rest of Born in the USA was still being recorded. Um, both Born in the USA and Voice of America would come out in 84. And that was the year I visited uh, South Africa as part of my uh, research. Sun City is the showplace of Baputitswana, one of the so-called independent homelands where South African blacks have been relocated. It's a lavish resort where you can relax and enjoy some of the world's headline entertainers. It's part of the reality of apartheid. obsessed with politics and, and particularly uh, our politics, uh, our foreign, our foreign policy post World War II, and um, I just found it to be um, shocking and appalling. You know, uh, growing up thinking we were the heroes of the of the world and uh, supporters of democracy everywhere, I was quite surprised to find out that was not the case. Um, we were supporting half the dictators in the world, and uh, especially in our hemisphere. And, uh, you know, just way off the rails as far as the ideals of our country. Uh, and uh, I just felt this needs to be talked about. So um, uh, South Africa was just on that list of um, foreign entanglements that I felt to be... Uh, simply wrong you know we were on the wrong side of uh, a lot of a lot of issues uh, in a lot of places the south african embassy in washington now hears daily chants protesting its policy of racial segregation demonstrators against american investments in south africa have resorted to vintage civil rights tactics Nonviolent protests have resulted in numerous arrests 
The picketing has embarrassed the Reagan administration for its policy towards South Africa. I went down there twice in 84 to do the research and uh, came back and decided um, this was too important to just be another song on my next solo album. I started my third solo album and um, decided to get a, gather a few people. You know, I, didn't, wasn't, I wasn't going to make it as big as a We Are the World or uh, They Know It's Christmas, you know, Bob Geldof's thing or Quincy Jones. I didn't picture it quite, you know, that big because I didn't have those kind of connections and that kind of juice, really. So I thought, you know, maybe I can get one artist from every genre. But uh, it turned out to be 50 artists. And... Uh, and we selected them. I hooked up with Danny Schechter, who was a a news guy and an activist for many years, uh, no longer with us. And um, Arthur Baker, a record producer who gave me his studio to work in for this project. And uh, Hart Perry, who filmed the whole thing. And thank goodness. So there's evidence that this thing actually happened. And... Uh, we ended up winning the International Documentary Association Award for the, for the project, and uh, and of course uh, was it was Sun City's the video um, that that Hart Perry started and brought in Jonathan Demi and Godly and Cream, and and uh, in the end, ironically, uh, because of the subject matter, uh, no radio station in America would play the song. It was too black for white radio, too white for black radio. So the only way people actually heard the song was through the video, uh, which MTV embraced, as well as BET, the, the Black Entertainment uh, Network. Uh, so, so you know, we we um, we ended up uh, that took up uh, most of '85 into '86. Uh, the idea was to create as much consciousness as possible uh, for the inevitable war that was going to come since Ronald Reagan was supporting the South African government. And we knew that um, the home run was going to be the economic sanctions. Uh, The sports boycott was already in place. And our thing would be the cultural boycott by, by, you know, boycotting uh, the Sun City Resort. And uh, that would bring enough publicity to then hopefully get the sanctions built through. At the end of 1986, that's exactly what happened. Release of Nelson Mandela, Walter Sisulu, and other political prisoners was a very positive step, as was the decision to lift the state of emergency, unban the ANC, the PAC, and 30 other political organizations. As I've uh, stated, South Africa has been a portion of the criteria for lifting sanctions. The sanctions bill came up. Reagan vetoed it, as expected, and we had so much momentum going. We actually was able to override his veto. I think it might have been the only veto that got uh, overridden in his uh, administration. And the sanctions bill took hold, and and the banks cut them off, and they had to let Mandela out of jail, and the South African government fell. So it was a complete success, which is rare in the world of international liberation politics which is where I spent most of the 80s. But uh, that was a wonderful, rare, complete victory. Yeah, incredible story. And you had, I mean, you had U2 on the album, uh, Bob Dylan, Pete Townsend, Run DMC, Africa Bombada. 
take us back to the studio. Did you record them all together? Was it all done separately? Yeah. No. Uh, it, it how was, was it? How was it put together? It was completely disorganized. It was nothing like, uh, like I say, it was nothing like Bob Geldof's thing or, or, or Quincy Jones, who really, you know, were very organized. Um, we uh, weren't sure who was coming in or when, uh, so they could come in one at a time, two at a time. Um, the main thing we wanted to do at that time artistically was include this new thing called rap. Okay, now now rap was so new that the industry was just hoping it would go away. It was just sort of an, an annoyance, you know? Um, so nobody understood while, why we were putting, you know, Melly Mel and, 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 and Duke Booty and, 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 uh, and Run DMC on a record with Miles Davis and Jackson Brown and, you know, you know Bobby Womack and David Ruffin, you know, and I, and we felt, you know, I felt very strongly that this new, this new rap thing was extraordinarily important because up until then, uh, black artists were never really encouraged uh, to express themselves. And uh, we all remembered, you know, Marvin Gaye and, and Stevie Wonder having to really fight with Barry Gordy to have to, to gain that freedom. And uh, and but on on the other side, you know, the white artists were expected to do that. I mean, it was a prerequisite, you know, you know, to be a real artist, you had to express yourself. So the opposite sort of thing was going on in the white world than in the black world. And finally, you know, here comes these rappers, and uh, uh, they're starting to talk about real life, real things. And I thought this is extremely healthy long overdue and I wanted to support it. We put these you know we put the raptors on on, on, on the record and uh, and what happened was we you know I we we did the demo of the original song and then as people came in, you know, the rappers came in pretty early. Um, we started the, started the song with this with log drum, just like keeping the beat, you know, just this, uh, this sort of rhythm. Boom, this a kind of a rhythm thing. And, and so, you know, in the single itself, you know, the rappers have a couple of lines. You know, each person coming in would have a line. And we thought, you know, this is this is kind of, um, you know, let's let's see if we can do more with this. So, so we started encouraging the rappers to like, you know, write something and just express yourself. This is just everybody, everybody who came in, we wanted to try and get them to express their feelings on the subject. And so, um, you know, Melly Mel went into the next room, came back with like this incredible rap. Uh, and and and, uh, and and they all did the same similar things. And so Arthur Baker then started putting together these montages of news. You know, we threw in some news uh, items and some, you know, different different. You know, we had different musicians hanging around. Arthur had all, all like a whole army there to help us. And uh, so all of a sudden, other songs started to emerge from these sessions. Um, Miles Davis came in which was, you know, a miracle because he just did not do these things. And, 
he played to the log drum for like five minutes. And, you know, I only had pictured him in the intro and in the middle of the song. So I'm not going to leave five minutes on Miles Davis on the floor, you know. So uh, we called up um, Michael Cascuna, this wonderful uh, jazz producer. I said, Michael, can we put together, you know, some Miles old guys, you know, from the, from the, you know, one of his quintets or whatever. And sure enough, we got Herbie Hancock to come in, Tony Williams, Ron Carter, you know and play along with what Miles had done. Miles Davis walking in was sort of a surprise. I mean, we, th we had heard he might show up, but when he showed up and when he did what he did, that was pretty mind-boggling. In 1985, Miles took part in a musical protest against apartheid. Yeah, let's run a cassette, run a little mix. Miles, this is Bonnie Reed, who's also singing with us. Hi, nice Hi. to meet you. Oh, yeah. sounded great. Oh, my thing. <laughs> I could tell. <laughs> and so that created another song, you know. And uh, Peter Gabriel came in and just started doing this chant on top of the log drum. And, um, you know, Tom Lord Alzi, one of our engineers, came in the middle of the night with Keith LeBlanc and put some drums to it, and then I put a guitar to it, and boom, there's another song. So so slowly, this one song uh, really became a legitimate, interesting, coherent, artistic album, you know, uh, completely organically. I mean, with no, no plan whatsoever, you know. And uh, that was, you know, that was a nice, a nice little thing that just, you know, was not planned, you know. You know, let's. I remember this so vividly the story you told me when we were having breakfast in Havana that morning, and that you know that the economic sanctions, what you were able to get done, overriding the Reagan veto, that also caused uh, Helmut Kohl yes. and Margaret Thatcher to cave. That's and right. That, that kind of thing had never happened before. No, it was dominoes in the real sense. Um, and they and, and keep in mind now the the Europeans and, and and British you know were much stronger about this issue than we were. I mean in America, it wasn't like I I I revitalized this issue. This issue didn't exist. You know I mean it just didn't. Um, so we you know we we had a long climb to uh, to 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 reach consciousness in our country. I mean I mean America is you know such a big place. It's hard to get into the consciousness of America anyway. You know, that's why so few new artists, you know, these days are breaking through. It's it's impossible. Um, but anyway, but in but 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 in Europe, uh, you know, the unions were very strong and, and uh and you know, they had a real they had a real consciousness about the issue already, you know. Throughout her years as Prime Minister, Mrs. Thatcher had been at odds with those Commonwealth countries who wanted tough sanctions imposed on the apartheid government of South Africa. She did claim to put pressure on the South African government to release Nelson Mandela from prison, but she didn't believe sanctions worked. She is an enemy of apartheid. Our differences are in regard to the methods of inducing the government to dismantle apartheid. And as I say, I regard this meeting as being productive, and I come away uh, f full of strength and hope. We had to work a little harder 
but once we once we once, once we all united, you know, worldwide, um, we really, uh, you know, it, it really started to, to get to, to break through. Incredible, and and just to finish this off, so long before you and I ever met, uh, I had written a paper when I was in college. This goes back to the early '80s um, about why American commercial radio didn't play the Sun City record. And I remember I got a B on the paper because the teacher said, you should have gone with your conclusion. You were a little weak at the end. And that I wouldn't outright say that it was racism that led to white commercial radio. You know, I hinted at it, but I guess I just wasn't ballsy enough to say it. Uh, and, uh, yeah, but I mean, there's no, there's no two ways about it. It was racism. Yeah. Yeah. To combined with, in fairness, com- combined with our obsession with categorization, you know, um, when I started my radio format, you know, and, and explained that it was going to be all at that time, 60 years of rock and soul. And now it's 70 years. Uh, you know, and people said, you can't play all 60 years of music in the same place. And I said, yes, you can. You know, uh, we right. just, we, we, we have very, very rigid categories in, in the radio world, you know, and, and we fell, you know, we fell victim to that also. Uh, but certainly there was some racism involved, you know, which was ironic, yeah. you know, to be with a subject matter. But um, Amazing. Yeah. And when Nelson Mandela was released uh, from prison, you met him pretty early on after his release. Yeah, we did two concerts in Wembley Stadium. Like I said, I mean, they were far more conscious about this subject. We, you know, we had, a, you know, 80, whatever, 80, 90,000 people in Wembley Stadium. To honor... A great man. The man is the leader of South Africa's oppressed black people. He is a symbol of their fight against the cruel and unjust system of apartheid. We disguised it as uh, uh, Nelson Mandela's... uh, 80th birthday party, I guess it was, or 70th birthday party, whatever. It was, you know, a birthday, a, a, a birthday celebration of Nelson Mandela, which, of course, it, it wasn't. It was a free Mandela, you know, that was our whole point. And, uh, and then um, we got him out, and then we did a second concert because he came on a, on a fundraising tour for the ANC. And uh, his, his political party. When, by ending the system of white minority domination, humanity will have ensured that never again shall the scourge of racial tyranny raise its ugly head. Yeah, I met him twice, and it was quite a remarkable. Uh, you know, he, 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 you, you, only, you only meet guys like that, you know, once or twice in a lifetime where they have that glow, that inner glow of uh, somebody that's just extraordinary, you know. It must have been, you know, what the religious leaders of the past must have had that, you know, that that unexplainable sort of charisma that, 
you know, you could just feel it was just palpable, you know. I want to throw the name of a band at you called The Shadows. <laughs> and I want to talk about a club called the Hullabaloo in Middletown, New Jersey. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you are going back. Coming strong. Like you want to come along. And jump for joy, we're telling you it's Hullabaloo. Tonight on Hullabaloo, the birds. The Love and Spoonful, Sonny and Cher, Jay and the Americans, The Kinks, The Four Seasons, Barry Maguire, The Circle, Trini Lopez, The Mamas and the Papas, The Bobby Fuller Four, The Young Rascals, The Outsiders, The Animals, Paul Revere. We were the luckiest generation, you know? I mean, let's face it, you know, we we hear a lot about the greatest generation, which uh, uh, tragically, uh, you know, we seem to be determined to kill off in our nursing homes at the moment, but that's another matter. Um, but that greatest generation, that World War II generation, was certainly the greatest generation. And I think we were the luckiest generation. Uh, we had teenage clubs all over the place and i don't think they existed before us or after us uh there was a um an extraordinary uh, amount of, of rock and roll on tv at the time which is impossible to believe now but there had to be seven eight rock and roll sh tv shows on every week uh every dj had one um we had the the, the, the national ones like uh Shindig, and one called Hullabaloo. And then you had the variety shows also, like Ed Sullivan and Hollywood Palace, uh, which always had a rock and roll act on, or rock or soul. They were really hand-in-hand -hand growing up. And um, so the Hullabaloo show got so popular that they had a, a club, a franchise. And it kind of created this circuit for us in our region, uh, the Middletown one was where I grew up. There was one in Freehold where, where Bruce grew up. And there was one in Asbury Park where we would both end up. Um, you could almost use the beach clubs of the Jersey Shore as the sort of fourth part of this, you know, I don't know, parallelogram or whatever, whatever shape it would be. But, you know, those four sides of the thing. You know, those four, those four, those four sort of uh, uh, geographic points, you know, created the circuit. And um, as I've well, said a million times, you know, the, the day before the Beatles played this variety show called Ed Sullivan, which the whole family would watch in one room on, the, on their small little TV, um, there were no bands in America, virtually. Uh, no bands that sang and played. Uh, there were a lot of instrumental bands, there were a lot of singing groups, and a lot of individuals, like Chuck Berry and Elvis Presley and those kind of guys, the, the pioneers. Uh, but there were no bands. And February 9th, 1964, the Beatles come and play the Ed Sullivan show. 70 million of us watched it. And February 10th, everybody had a band in their garage. Ed Sullivan! 
Thank you very much. Now, yesterday and today, our theater's been jammed with newspapermen and hundreds of photographers from all over the nation, and these veterans agree with me that the city never has witnessed the excitement stirred by these youngsters from Liverpool who call themselves the Beatles. Now, tonight, you're going to twice be entertained by them. Right now, and again in the second half of our show, ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles! My band and uh, uh, First of Shadows, which was not my band actually, I was just a singer in that band. And then soon after, would have my first band. By 1966 or so, I would have The Source. Uh, and Bruce had The Castiles. And, um, and Middletown Hullabaloo is, is where is where we met. Uh, Bruce Bruce and The Castiles came in to see my band, uh, the band I was in called the shadows and we met there and uh you know been friends ever since right and do you remember that very first conversation yeah it wasn't anything you know it wasn't anything too too uh too memorable we just i think we just talked about where, where he was playing next you know and come see his band you know um and uh and that was it, really. You know, it was like, what are you guys doing? Where are you, where are you playing? You know, how often? Um, but we um, still in high school, you know. So, so we're still mostly gigs on the weekends, I guess. You know, really, I think probably exclusively Fridays and Saturdays. But there was lots of places to play, a lot, you know. And uh, so we, you know, we worked all the time. An incredible talent that came out of those clubs. I know you, you know, co-founded the Southside Johnny, but there must have been a tremendous energy with all that young talent. Yeah, it was just it was all over the place. Uh, you know, Bon Jovi came out of that circuit a bit later. He was like almost the next generation. But um, um, yeah, I mean, the fact that three of us, you know, the, the well, the four of us. Uh, you know, uh, you County Southside and Bon Jovi. Um, the four of us to break through and, and just get well-known out of New Jersey was already uh, quite a feat. I mean, it was, you know, not not how, how people broke through in those days. You had to go to New York or L.A. There was no such thing as a New Jersey scene. You know, we, we had to create one. And... Um, just by you know the bizarre circumstance of the time, we uh, we were able to get national exposure. You know, Stevie uh, Popovich, um, this visionary uh, record guy who signed the Jukes, uh, unfortunately no longer with us. Um, you know, had the had the vision to to create a uh, national radio broadcast out of the Stone Pony in New Jersey in Asbury Park. Now, there had never been anything like that. You know, if you, there's very, very few national broadcasts, first of all, but it had to be either with one of the big syndicators or, or, or you know, but always out of New York and L.A. Maybe you might catch something out of Nashville. But, you know, there's no such thing as a national broadcast out of Asbury Park, you know. So Stevie Popovich uh, was a big part of that also. And, um, uh, and Bruce had gotten some notoriety from his first couple albums, although they were not successful. 
So he was hanging out with us because couldn't work. You know, once you're in the business, it's a whole different dynamic as far as working. You know, now you had to work the, the showcase clubs that existed back then. They don't exist anymore. Uh, like the bottom line, you know, or the Roxy in, in LA. Uh, you know, every, every town had a showcase club where record, uh, you know, people who had record deals played, which was a different circuit than where you played locally, you know. I mean, locally, you know, we we got lucky with the Stone Pony and completely changed the whole concept of what a bar band was with the Jukes. Uh, bar bands, uh, you know, were not respected back in those days. You, you, you were basically bands that couldn't make it in the real business and had to play the top 40 on the radio, you know, which in the, in the 60s was uh, wonderful. Our, our, our pop music in the 60s was, was fantastic. But um, by the 70s, things had started getting a little weird. And, um, and you didn't get, you didn't get to have a whole lot of respect being a bar band. And the Jukes changed that. We, we, um, we were able to, first of all, because the place was ready to close, the, the roof had caved in and from some hurricane or something. And, and the owners were just trying to, you know, get a little bit more money out of the tourist, tourists that summer before closing. So we came in and said, listen, you know, we want to play what we want and we'll take the door. You take the bar. You got nothing to lose. Closing anyway, and uh, and that's what happened. And so we created the scene playing, um, uh, you know, music that was not typical. You know, it was a lot of album stuff, you know. Uh, we, we take songs from Sam and Dave and orchestrating albums, you know, that weren't necessarily the hits. And, you know, all kinds of interesting songs, mostly covers at that point. But we, um, we became so respectable that... Um, uh, Rolling Stone started adapting, you know, uh, I mean, they, 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 they basically, they adopted the, the bar band's uh, uh, description as something that was actually respectable and uh, a new genre that was emerging, um, you know, from street level and, and, and recognized that this is something interesting. And uh, after the Duke came out, when they finally recorded, 75, 76, after every band that came out after them, you know, Grant Parker and the Rumor, uh, Huey Lewis and the News, Elvis Costello, Mink DeVille, all of those groups, you know, in their, in their reviews were suddenly called bar bands and, and they meant it in a good way, you know. Um, Rolling Stone had already made history by, you know, their last page used to be a live, a review of a live show. You know, it's usually the garden or, you know, some, some big venue. And they came to Stone Pony and, uh, and reviewed the Jukes, I think, before they even recorded. And, and, and it was like, you know, instead of the Madison Square Garden, you know, November 12th, 
it was, you know, Stone Pony, Asbury Park, Thursdays, Fridays, and Sundays, you know, uh, as the, as a description. So it was, a you know, the whole thing going on down there that, uh, again, just happened by circumstance. So. And, and when you were touring then, I mean, this was a very different experience than what it is now. You guys were, you know, doing everything, driving and I'm sure yeah. lots of late nights and all night driving. Yeah, yeah. When you look back on that era, you know, what makes you smile? What memories make you smile? Well, you know, it 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 was it was nice, you know, that that camaraderie you had when you start, you know, we we were really a band. It wasn't like a solo act, you know, Bruce Springsteen and E Street Band were really a band. And so, um, and we were friends and, you know, experiencing things for the first time, you know, traveling around and, uh, you know, you were kind of, um, you're always a little bit, a little bit, there was always a little bit of anxiety though, you know, that, that kind of undercut everything because you weren't sure you were going to make it. And, and, uh, we thought we might've been too late. You know, it was it was really getting late in the day. I mean, we're you know in our early twenties. Um, it felt like you know most of the great stuff had been done. You know, uh, in that era that I refer to as the Renaissance period of the fifties and sixties. I mean, it, it was it was hard to find space. You know, artistically in there and to try and come up with something that was original. Um, what we would realize later is the originality of the Renaissance period of the fifties and sixties was actually finite and beginning in 1970, 71, um, there would be the complete artistic fragmentation of the business and turn into hybrids ever since. And we weren't, you know, quite aware of that being okay. You know, it was still, you had to be original to, to, to matter. And, uh, you know, suddenly, you know, these hybrids start happening and, and, uh, and we weren't sure if that was, uh, possible to have success with or not. Um, but it turns out, of course, uh, the hybrids would end up having uh, their own success. Uh, but we weren't sure at that point, you know, we weren't sure, you know, was it too late? Is there anything left to do artistically? You know, it was like that kind of feeling all the time. And, you know, driving around a station wagon and then we graduated to a bus at some point, but not, not a luxury bus. I mean, we, <laughs> so once we had a tie, the, there was like a racks of, um, with mattresses on them and we had a, tie them up and whenever a bus went around a corner you know the entire rack would fall over you know uh so you know it, it was you know it, it was enjoyable because you're young you know and you haven't done it before but you know not exactly uh you know not, not exactly <laughs> luxurious glamorous show business <laughs> You know, it was, you know, it was the bottom, you know, you were at the bottom and, and you're, you know, you're fighting your way up and 
you know, luckily for us, there was no plan B, you know, we really, we didn't have any choice, you know, but to hang in there and just, you know, keep fighting and, and try and try and make it. Cause, uh, it just was no plan B for some, some of us, you know, and I know you left the band for about 15 years, but, but before you left in 80, I guess it was 84, um, was there a moment where, you know, you and Bruce looked at each other on stage and said, I think we got this, you know, we're, we're going to, we're going to be okay. Oh yeah. No, we had, we had broken through with our fifth album, the river. We had our first hit single. And I was, you know, very proud that that was the first record I I co-produced, and um, uh, no, we 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 had made it. That's that's what changed everything in my head. You know, I mean, it, it was a little bit extreme the way the way my head opened up after that. You know, because you have this tunnel vision, you know, your whole life, and um, and suddenly we are. Uh, that one hit single, you know, we were so we were so popular live uh, at that point, even though we weren't getting much radio airplay. Uh, that one hit single um, boosted our sales from I don't know what, you know, probably somewhere around three, four, five hundred thousand, maybe. I don't think Darkness went gold even, so probably somewhere in the hundreds of thousands. To like three million. Going from you know three hundred thousand to three million uh, meant in those days you weren't you graduating from clubs to theaters into arenas, and we still, we were selling out arenas at that point, and that is at that point that's total success. Uh, so we we were feeling quite successful, and um. For me, the effect was opening up my head to like, okay, what have I been missing for the past 15 years, you know, while I've been trying to succeed in this rock and roll world. And um, that led to our our first successful tour of Europe, the River Tour, uh, in that 80, 81 period. And during that tour, uh, a, a kid in Germany walked up to me and said, you know, why are you putting missiles in my country? And, uh, you know, the question was, you know, absurd to me. I said, you know, if you look at my guitar case, you're going to find a guitar, kid, you know, not a missile. Um, but the question stuck with me for weeks, and I, I couldn't shake it. And I finally, you know, finally had the revelation that uh, when one is traveling, you're not a guitar player or a taxi driver or a Republican or a Democrat. You are an American. And I had never thought about that before. Not really, you know. I said, wow. 
I'm American. <laughs> what, what what does that mean? <laughs> you know, what, you know, and uh, if we were a democracy, you know, which I still thought we were back then, of course, we're not a democracy, but, you know, we, we, we grew up thinking that we are, um, you know, we, we, we must have some responsibility that goes with, you know, that, that citizenship. And I wondered what that was. I said, geez, I, I guess I am putting missiles in this kid's country without knowing it. I wonder what else I've been doing for the last 40 years since World War II. And I started researching uh, our foreign policy, like I said, and, uh, you know, and had found all of these issues, in, especially in Latin America, where we were supporting all of the dictators uh, in order to basically enforce uh, slave labor for the multinational corporations, you know? And um, I just decided, Jesus, somebody has to talk about this. I feel like a German citizen in the, in the you know, 20s, 30s, uh, watching Jewish Jewish people getting rounded up and, uh, and keeping my mouth shut, you know? Uh, you know, it was our, 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 our tax dollars that was buying those bullets that were killing these people in Guatemala and El Salvador and all the way to you know, Chile and, uh, you know, and I, I thought, man, you know, I got to do something, you know, I want to do something about this. So I actually, you know, me being the extremist I am, uh, left the band to do it. You know, I, I, I said, I got I to gotta do this full time. I wish I hadn't. Uh, looking back, you know, uh, I wish I was able to do both things. <laughs> but, uh, you know, in retrospect, it's always, <laughs> it's always easier than when you're in the middle of it. But uh, I was extremely obsessed at the time. And uh, so I left... With Sun City's success, um, you know, no one had ever seen that kind of political success before. You know, I mean, you can you can feed people in Africa, which is fine. You start bringing down governments in Africa, and people start getting nervous. You know, and so so I kind of got you know not officially, but I, I kind of got blackballed after that in the business. And I spent the most of the nineties just walking my dog, and I finally out of the most bizarre circumstance possible. Uh, this guy, David Chase, sees me inducting the Rascals on a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame broadcast, which was the first time it was ever broadcast, uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It was always a private ceremony. And he sees me and says, you know, geez, let's get him in, this, in my new TV show. I want some new faces, you know. And um, so, you know, uh, I finally get a job, uh, you know, after 18 years of, you know, whatever. And um, we filmed the first season of Sopranos. And I'm, you know, very happy to be finally, I've landed somewhere, which is obviously my destiny. And Bruce calls and says, let's put the band back together. You know, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you had to wait 18 years. <laughs> I finally get a new job. And now you want to put the band back together, you know. Uh, so, at the, and at the same time, I start my radio show. Uh, you know, so um, 
I went from having no no work throughout the entire decade of the 90s, basically, to having three jobs simultaneously. And uh, I said, if I ever get back into the business and, and uh, are able to work again, I am never going to stop. I am going to make sure that I never am, am, am in this position again like I was in the 90s where I just couldn't couldn't really work, you know. So is it true that Chase originally wanted you and uh, you were thought of for the role of Tony Soprano? Is that true? Yeah, that is true. Um, and, um, you know, fortunately for all of us, I think uh, the, the right thing ended up happening with Jimmy Gandolfini. Uh, but, but uh, um, yeah, at first he, he saw me in the, in the lead role and, and HBO wouldn't, would not uh, let him cast me that way. They were like, are you out of your mind? This guy's never acted before in his life. He wanted, to, you know, we're gonna we're gonna bet the franchise on on this on this you know this guy who's acting for the first time. That's ridiculous. So they they wouldn't let him they wouldn't let him cast me that way. When, and then Chase create Chase created Silvio Dante for you. Yeah, yeah. I, I, at that point, I actually said to him, you know, now that I think about this, David. I mean, now that now that things are getting serious, I, I said I, I I feel guilty taking an actor's job. I, I really do. I, I think these, these, these guys, they work their whole lives. You know, they, they go to school in the acting class and they, and they, and they do off Broadway and, and, you know, and they, you know, work their way uh, up. And, um, and he said, okay, well, all right, I, I, I will write you in a part that doesn't exist. You know, this way is no guilt. Oh, 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 80K. How's that 20% of a million? Have a cookie, you're delirious. It was 750 tops. Fuck it all, Paulie. Tommy case that shit all. What's with the fucking accounting out there? That's 100 grand a piece. You got it? We're looking after come out. And uh, he says, what do you want to do? I said, well, I, I, I did have a tr this treatment uh, about this uh, hitman, independent hitman who had retired called Silvio Dante and had a club. You know, and all of these Sly families had a table in the club and the, and the police commissioner and the mayor. And, you know, it's kind of like a wise guy, Casablanca, you know. And uh, he said, geez, I like that. Let me get back to you. And he got back to me a day later. He says, uh, it's too expensive, but uh, we'll make the club a strip club. And you'll run it for the family and be, uh, you know, Tony's uh, consigliere, you know. The underboss. So the bada bing was born. <laughs> All right, Steve. Thanks so much for doing this. It was a real pleasure. I hope I didn't torture you too bad. <laughs> Good to hear from you, man. Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this, visit advertisingweek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. And original music was by Ian Levy.